Listener. Late last year, shortly after the 2022 midterms, retiring Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger and I got together to talk about the future of American politics in the wake of Donald Trump, in the wake of January the 6th. It's not the time for any of us to rest, because this is the time where you may be laid a good punch in the boxing match, but you've got to come back with a couple more hooks to knock him down, or else he's just going to stumble and recover. And that's kind of the moment we're at. Adam was pretty upbeat. He saw the midterms as having demonstrated that Trump's type of politics was being rejected by Americans. And he saw the glimmerings of a return to political normalcy. More than six months later, he's not optimistic anymore. Trump is resurgent in the polls. The latest polling shows the former president maintaining his stranglehold over the GOP. His legal woes have multiplied, but his political support has only increased. And there's scant evidence that any of his challengers will be able to loosen his grip on the nomination, even as he faces criminal charges. What does a Trumpian America Mark II look like? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? So, Adam, great to see you again. You What's it like uh, not being a member of Congress and, and what are you doing nowadays? Well, first off, it's great. Um, you know, I, I always wondered, like, are the, is there going to be moments where you kind of miss it? And no, no, there's not. It's uh, I've enjoyed it. And, and uh, you know, I still obviously stay very interested in what's going on and I stay very active with Country First. And So what? Country First. So, so what, what, what is Country First? So basically, after January 6th, I, I started this. I didn't know it was going to be a movement. I actually just did this video. It's like a kind of tell the truth video. Like, hey, you know, here's what's going on. And and it ended up with a ton of people joining, you know, and it created this real energy. And I initially thought this was just going to be like a save the GOP kind of thing. And uh, But it turned into really, uh, you know, a lot of members are Democrats, a lot of members are Republicans and independents. And so it's basically we want to help people that want to put the country above their party. At Country First, we know that many of us are tired of the mudslinging, name-calling, and self-serving action from leaders, sometimes even those we love. So we're asking reasonable Americans to leave the extremists to themselves and come together. Honestly, I don't care if you're a liberal Democrat, a conservative Republican, or anywhere in between. If your commitment is to the country over your party, you're the kind of people we want to help. And we just started an academy, for instance, where we're kind of helping candidates that want to run for office learn about that process. And so it's been fun. It's been for me, it's been fun. It's it's exciting to see. We have, I don't know now, a couple hundred thousand members to just see this energy of people that frankly want to actually disagree agreeably. And so that part's been really enjoyable for me. And then, of course, just doing some speaking. I got a book coming out in October. And uh, and now I actually have time to spend with my family. I'm sure you understand, you know, those sacrifices that go into public service. Yes. Shortly after the 2022 midterms, you know, we sat down, had our first chat on this podcast, and you suggested a few more legal setbacks could knock Donald Trump out. However, since then, his legal woes have multiplied. The cases against him have increased and they're, they're much more formidable, particularly the documents case. But his lead in the polls has only increased. He's, as of today, he's a full 37 points 
ahead of his closest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I mean, is is Trump unstoppable? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I was the only time in my life I was wrong. Just kidding. I've been wrong many times. But he, uh, I think, you know, I underestimated the party base was faced with Donald Trump can't win. I thought that some of this rationalization would be, okay, we can put Ron DeSantis in. He's kind of like Donald Trump, but he can win. But what I underestimated is the extent to which, and this is just the party base. This is, I'll talk about the rest of America. But the extent to which owning the libs, kind of pissing people off, showing your toughness by saying, I don't care about this and this. I'm going to still vote for Donald Trump. I underestimated the power that has over people. I underestimated the cowardice, quite honestly, of other leaders in the party. I mean, it's one thing I've been shocked and I'm still shocked every day at the number of people that are tolerant of January 6th, other members of Congress, for instance. I, I thought that when it came to facing potential losses, maybe that would spur them. It didn't. They're just scared to death. You know, Donald Trump has created this fear culture among Republican leaders. And so I think he's unstoppable in the primary. I mean, it's possible that he ends up getting not just indicted, he's been indicted, but that he ends up getting convicted, which I think would have an impact. But each one of these, while it's not necessarily hurting him in the Republican Party, I think it's making it far less likely that he can win the general election. That said, we have to be very careful in this country to not assume that Donald Trump can't win that general election. We made that mistake once. And personally, I think Joe Biden's been an okay president. I don't agree with a lot of his policies, but he's gotten a lot done. He's been okay on Ukraine, but he's older. And there is a lot of concern about that. And so I'm very worried that people may just hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump because he seems to have more energy than Joe Biden. I hope I'm wrong. But anyway, I think it's going to be hard for Donald Trump to win a general election. But I do think uh, short of literally God himself coming down, and maybe that wouldn't even be enough to do it with these people and endorsing somebody else. I think he wins the Republican primary. Mm. Well, I mean, in, in, in a two-horse race, both horses have, got a, have always got a chance. And as we both know, Biden could you know, could have a health incident. You're right, he does look very old. You're also right, I agree from this distance, Adam, that I think he's done, you know, a very good job. But nonetheless, it isn't a great look. And the idea that Donald Trump would be seen and is seen as the more energetic alternative is incredible. It is. But you must, as a a young man, you must be just, must blow your mind to see that you're going to have an election you know, with one guy in his late 70s and another guy in his early 80s running for president. It's it's wild. Yeah, it's amazing because it's like with Barack Obama, we kind of advanced a generation or I guess fell back a generation, whatever, mm. you know, got a younger generation. And then we basically, it was like the revenge of the baby boomers. They're like, no, no, we want another, you know, couple years of power here. And so Donald Trump wins, Joe Biden wins, Biden or Trump is going to win. I think though, and I'm sure... In Australia, you know, your folks are looking around going, how? (laughs) How did we get here? How are we here again? And there's a lot of Americans that are saying, look, this, I mean, America's a great country with great people. Are we really, really going to do this again? And the answer is probably. And the reason is 
because of the primary system, because it's all about yeah. turning out the base. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, to say Donald Trump has energy is a joke. It gets back to that that great uh, Australian export, Rupert Murdoch, and what he's done, yeah, you thanks, know, through Fox to yeah, yeah, to create this uh, this sort of angertainment complex that uh, you know has produced this environment that enables all this to happen. The, the big question is, I guess, what do you think a second Trump presidency would look like, assuming it happened? Very, very frightening. So. One of the sad realities I've I've been able to kind of grip a little now, and I think people are coming to understand, is American democracy felt invulnerable. You know, we have these institutions, you have the Supreme Court, you've got, you know, you have all these like checks and balances. But what was driven home is the realization that, for instance, the Supreme Court, with, you know, its ability to basically declare anything unconstitutional or whatever, it's got a legitimate purpose. In theory, if the Supreme Court makes a decision, there is nothing that can force that decision to happen. That's because it's it is the role of the executive branch execute to execute that decision. If Joe Biden or Donald Trump and Trump 2.0 decides the Supreme Court made a decision, they said what I did was unconstitutional or they said, you know, we couldn't recount the votes or whatever. And what's the old saying? It's like the chief justice has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And that's the frightening thing is the only thing that keeps democracy together is this understanding and contract among Americans that we're going to play by the rules. When you start playing outside of the rules and you're convincing, it's not like, you know, Donald Trump would only then have 5% of support. He's convincing almost half of the country to agree. It's hard to see what that, you know, man on a white horse to come and save the day is because all those institutions that's those and he's breaking them and so i think at trump 2.0 it's it's i think it's frightening for the world because he's made it clear his affection for strong men i have sat in a meeting with donald trump where he asked us to uh what was it wasn't huawei but it was uh china zte we were putting a ban on zte equipment in the national defense authorization act and he asked it was me and about four other house members and about 10 u.s senators he asked us to pull that out so that we wouldn't ban that equipment. And his answer was, when we said why, his answer was, because I made she a promise. He called and asked me, and I promised him. So it would just be a favor to me. Now, this is a very important issue. You know, Chinese telecom equipment and U.S. defense stuff. And his thing was, he likes President Xi, and he made an agreement to him. He made a commitment to him. You look at his, obviously, great words he says about Vladimir Putin, about Kim Jong-un. I mean, he will turn the world order on its head And the reason it'll be easier to do is because the first time there were a lot of good people that surrounded him, but now he knows the game. Now he can put only sycophants around him and he knows when people are going to play the, we can't do this now game. Adam, you, you were a Republican congressman when Trump was elected in 2016. How has the Republican party changed between 2016 and 2024, what it will look like in the next presidential election. So it has changed drastically in a couple of ways. First off, in 2016, I I felt like there was still some kind of moral, and I'm not talking about family issues, but moral just like 
lines that people wouldn't cross personally or, you know, things they wouldn't do. And it's this is how authoritarianism works. It's also how it's like the sunken cost fallacy. When you start lying for somebody or you start compromising your values, eventually you have to keep doing that because to stop doing that, you're in essence admitting that you've been compromising your values the whole time. It's the sunken cost fallacy. You know, why is it that we stayed in Vietnam longer than we should have? Because we lost so many people there that we're like, we, we can't leave now. And it's kind of the same thing here. So you have members of Congress. Now let's take the ones that have been in in 16 and are still in. They have had to compromise what they believe to the point where it is much easier. I've been, I've been tempted with this so I can speak personally of it. It's much easier to just put all your beliefs aside and just come to the understanding that I'm going to be with our tribe because the other tribe is so bad. And so I'm just going to play this game. For those that are coming in now, that have come in six, since 2016, they actually believe this stuff. And I, I think this kind of latest class of Republican members of Congress and senators, uh, they're not just acting anymore. They're not just saying what they need to say. A lot of them truly believe this garbage. And that's concerning to me. When you have a significant amount of Republicans out there standing for for Putin, standing for the Russian invasion, uh, it's it idolizing Viktor Orban. Idolizing Orban. I mean, CPAC goes and does like a worship service of him now every year. This was unthinkable in 2016. Unthinkable. And now, I mean, is, is the Republican Party any longer uh, committed to? democracy as we both understand it, rule of law, independent judiciary, the restraint, the, 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 the restraint and balances that you have in the design of American democracy. Is the Republican Party still committed to that? No, no. And I think if you put certain members of Congress on truth serum, you know, you had the CIA shoot them up. And I think some of them would believe that they're committed to that. But it's gotten to the point where it's like the Democrats are the, the enemy and they're so bad that we now I, I mean, I've heard people say and this is you see this on the Internet where people are saying the Democrats for so long used the institution of government to silence conservatives, which isn't true. And they say now it's time for us to do the same thing. And there is a truly belief now that we have to use the institution of the state to basically win those values. So no, I don't think the party, there are Republicans that are committed to it, but I don't think the party by and large at this point is committed to that. Now that could turn on a dime when you get the right candidate, the right leader of the GOP. So Adam, what do you think a, a Trump presidency would mean for America's allies? I mean, do you think, for example, Trump would could do a deal with Xi Jinping to say, look, you, you have Taiwan. Let's not let's stop arguing about it. Boy, I, you know, that's a tough thing. I think I think what it means for the allies is I mean, obviously, the allies would be very concerned as they should be. I think it does potentially lead. I mean, to will he things. will he will he walk out of NATO? I mean, he threatened. To yeah, do that once I, I think so. But according to, you know, John Bolton, he wanted to leave and he was ready to leave and, you know, people stopped him. So I think that's possible. I think it's it's he will certainly try to end the war in Russia or the war in Ukraine, but not on Ukraine's terms. Uh, he will probably withhold the funding from Ukraine and in essence cause Ukraine to have to go to the table for unfavorable deal. You know, I think Australia will always be an ally. New Zealand will be an ally. But is it like... How strong is that alliance? And obviously, there'd be concern on your guys' ends. And 
And what does it mean for China? He, former president talks very tough on China. He doesn't act tough on China. And the problem is when you try to explain to people those details, they just don't understand it. No, well, he, he, he definitely likes dealing with strong men. Uh, I mean, I've seen him with both Putin and Xi Jinping close up. And he was incredibly deferential to both of them, and in particular Putin, who I think he had a sort of almost a bromance with. Whether he still feels the same way about Putin, I don't know, but but he treated Putin with awe. There's no, it was it was quite quite eerie actually. Yeah, that's interesting, and, and you got to see that like firsthand. And and I think the thing that I wish people understood about Donald Trump, which you do, is okay. Anybody that has ever been a strong ally of Donald Trump that's defended him, they always end up getting thrown under the bus. Always. Anybody that's would be seen as kind of like tough or a competitor, he's always trying to win them over. So, for instance, I had a meeting, my very first meeting with Donald Trump right after he was elected. I go into the Oval Office and I didn't support him in the 2016 election. I didn't support Hillary, but I just kind of stayed out of it. And he knew that. So I went into the Oval Office fully expecting he was going to chew me out. You know, you're you're disloyal to the party, whatever. And I I was ready for it. He's the new president. He can have his shots. I go in, and the thing he says to me, he looks at me and he goes, Adam, you are great on television. And it caught me off guard. I'm like, oh, well, thanks, Mr. President. And literally in this meeting with 10 people or so, he just kept telling everybody how good I was on TV. And about half of the time in that meeting, he's looking at me. Okay. Now I can see how that works then for pe- on people like Lindsey Graham, who all of a sudden now say, I've got the president's attention. He's watching. He's paying attention. I have an opportunity to get close to power here. Well, look at the way he pursued Kim Jong-un, which was, I mean, just, just surreal. And he keeps these, I mean, from what I've heard, he keeps some of the letters with Kim Jong-un and loves to talk. He calls them his love letters. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters and they're great letters. We fell in love. But you know what? Now they'll make they'll say, Donald Trump said they fell in love. How horrible. How horrible is that? So unprecedented. Adam, good luck with Country First. It's absolutely, well, it's absolutely vital that you, you succeed in that. The, the fate of the democratic world swings on what happens in Washington. Yeah, and thanks for your leadership in the past and in the present. And I'll tell you, I don't care if you're left or right out there or something else. We have got to have, and and not just in the U.S., but across the seas too, together, we've got to have an un, sometimes unnatural or tentative alliance between people that think differently but do believe in one thing, and that is democracy, because we are in that fight now to defend democracy around the world. We are. Thank you very much. You bet. Great to see you. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika.